a stupefying 80% of the Turkish public believes that the United States was complicit in the failed coup attempt in July 2016. Yeah, really see that one tweet from uh, Donald Trump essentially sunk the current currency. So we are still the big, big, big... But he's got soaring prices, a crashing currency, and banks that are starting to get into trouble. So the present course looks unsustainable. The way out, for the most part, is going to involve doing some things that he's really not going to enjoy doing. This is Deep Dish on Global Affairs, going beyond the headlines and critical global issues. I'm Brian Hansen, and today we're talking about the unfolding Turkish currency crisis and its economic and political implications. This is a complicated crisis that includes both economic factors as well as political factors. So we have with us two experts on Turkey and politics, Stephen Cook and Henri Barki, and one international economics expert, Phil Levy. To help us understand what's happening, we have Stephen Cook. He is the Henri Enrico Matei Senior Fellow for Middle East and African Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations and also a columnist at Foreign Policy Magazine. Welcome, Stephen. Good to have you on. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thanks. Joining us as well is Henri Barki, a professor at Lehigh University, the former director of the Middle East program at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars, and a former member of the U.S. State Department policy planning staff. Welcome, Henri. Hi. Thank you for inviting me. And closing out our troika is uh, Chicago Council's very own Phil Levy, who is our senior fellow for the global economy. Uh, also a former White House trade economist who worked in the State Department as well and a deep dish regular. Uh, it's good to have you on, Phil. Good to be here. Thank you. So today's discussion is really prompted by the economic crisis in Turkey, which has recently grabbed the headlines. Turkey has been one of the fastest growing emerging markets in the world and then just recently has been hit by an economic crisis. One of the markers was that the value of the Turkish lira fell 40 percent against the dollar compared to the beginning of the year. In the midst of this currency crisis, President Trump really doubled down, doubling steel tariffs and and aluminum tariffs on Turkey, demanding the release of U.S. Pastor Andrew Brunson. Turkish President Erdogan called this economic warfare, and this economic crisis comes at a time where there's already heightened tensions between the U.S. and and Turkey on many issues. Uh, Detention and human rights abuses, a slide toward authoritarianism in Turkey, U.S. refusal to extradite Turkish cleric Gulan, who is living in the U.S. and who Erdogan accuses of leading the coup against him in 2016. Turkey recently purchased Russian air defense systems. Turkey has been on the opposite side of the Syrian war and taken actions including fighting with U.S. Kurdish allies and even threatening a military action against U.S. troops. All the while, Turkey's a NATO ally. It's a country of 82 million people, about the same size as Germany, and it occupies a critical geopolitical position at the crossroads of Europe, the Middle East, and Central Asia. There's lots to unpack here and lots at stake for a country that most Americans don't think very much about. So, Stephen, with this backdrop, I'd like to start with you by asking a question that comes to us from one of our Deep Dish listeners through our, Glo- our Deep Dish on Global Affairs Facebook group. Justin Hunter asks, how much of this economic crisis is the result of internal political discord or recent sanctions or some other cause? Essentially, why is this crisis happening? 
Uh, well, thanks for the question. It's an important one. And I just want to say as an aside, I, I just realized why this is called Deep Dish. Um, being a kid from New York, I prefer to have my pizza in New York style, but I can understand the uh, the attraction of Deep Dish. Anyway, um, I, it, look, I think the economic crisis is something of Turkey's own making and the poor decision making at, uh, quite honestly, uh, the Turkish presidency. Uh, President Erdogan has... Uh, unorthodox views on the economy. And the most important thing to remember about these views is that he believes that high interest rates cause inflation. And as a result, uh, he has been uh, very strong in pressuring the central bank on keeping interest rates low. Interest rates low have been a key to growth. Uh, growth has been a key to the uh, electoral successes of President Erdogan's Justice and Development Party over the course of the last 16 years. With higher interest rates, uh, Turks who have been living on easy and cheap money will now have less uh, money in their pockets. So it will also have a major impact on big Turkish business and Turkish banks who have been uh, who've been borrowing dollars on the cheap and suddenly are facing uh, higher interest rates. Uh, Erdogan has done everything that he can to undermine the independence of the central bank because of President Erdogan's unorthodox views, because Turkish uh, leaders, uh, pres- the president himself, his son-in-law, the finance and treasury minister, have said there really is no reason, though, for the Lira crisis. It's an attack by the United States. That has not done much to uh, to to calm uh, investors in uh, the Turkish currency or the Turkish economy. So, Phil, you're a you're an economist. Erdogan doesn't want to raise interest rates. I think he called them the mother and father, high interest rates, the mother and father of all evil in the world. What is the standard economic response to a situation where the, your currency is plunging, people are disinvesting from your from your country? What's the classic response? Well, the classic response is to do pretty much the opposite of what he's doing. I think uh, the important thing to remember is the raising interest rates is like restricting the money supply. If you have too much money sloshing around, people think eh, that money's going to be worthless, and they try to get out of it. And that's what's happening with the Turkish lira right now. So the, usually the response would be raise interest rates, convince people that there won't be too much money around, and attract investors in with the higher rates. Usually that's done in conjunction with a program, say with the International Monetary Fund, that's looking particularly problematic in Turkey's case, given the standoff with the United States. So the monetary fund being somebody comes in and bails out the country, essentially lending the country money so it can continue to pay its its debts um, as the crisis unfolds. What happens, and either any of the three of you, what happens internally? To, what's going on inside of Turkey right now when the currency is plunging? How does that affect things inside the country? What you have in a country like Turkey or most countries that are very integrated in world trade is they're very dependent on imports for things that they consume. So in Turkey's case, energy is a very important import. Energy usually priced in dollars. That means that when the Turkish lira plunges 40% against the dollar, 
your energy imports just became a lot more expensive. And that's not only energy, that's everything you've been importing. Um, so it tends to be very painful. Turkey has high and raging inflation at the moment, and this will stoke that. So in practice, what happens then inside of Turkey is people experience rising prices, it sounds like, and have a hard time repaying their debts because their Turkish lira just is not able to to buy as much foreign currency when they're when they're trying to repay. Is that what people are going to experience? Yeah, that's what they experience. And it gets to be very difficult for banks to deal with this sort of situation, which then tends to inhibit commerce more generally. And these things can build on themselves in a form of panic where people see, if, you see, if you've been holding on to Lira and you've just seen their value plunge 40%, your inclination is probably, I got to get rid of my Lira and get into dollars. But doing that just pushes the currency down even further. So one of the things that some people have talked about in the midst of this crisis is the concern about contagion, that what starts in Turkey will spill over the borders and will have impact in other countries and essentially drive um, drive a similar set of economic crises and panic in other places. Why might that happen? Uh, you know, what are the conditions under which that happens, and how likely is that in this particular situation? It, it's a serious concern. There's a couple ways this can happen. One, you can have direct effects where a big, a reasonably big country like Turkey, if it gets into trouble, it can pull others down with it. So, for example, the European Central Bank just flagged that there were some major European banks that were lenders to Turkey and might be in trouble if they're. Uh, if the Turkish borrowers got into trouble. So you can have knock-on effects like that. The other thing that can happen is it can serve as a signal to, to investors elsewhere, hey, you should be a little more worried about emerging markets than you thought. And to the extent that they then start looking for common causes, like how will people handle tightening money in the U.S., they might start to reevaluate investments in places like South Africa, India, or Brazil where it's not a direct effect, it's not their trade with Turkey that's getting hit, but it's people thinking, this is a common phenomenon, and I'm going to pull back elsewhere. So in other words, taking their money out of those countries, causing perhaps those currencies decline, and also having the same internal investment issues, if I follow that. Which we have seen. Not, not to the same extent, and there's some arguments as to why Turkey's situation and their fundamentals are worse than those other countries but investors in, in panic mode are not always very discriminating. Stephen and Henri, I want to bring you into this conversation in terms of what's going on inside of Turkey. We hear about plunging values of the lira. Uh, what does that mean for the average person in Turkey, and what are we seeing going on inside that country? Well, first of all, the lira has stabilized to some extent. I mean, it, at one point, it's so very, very low levels, but, but since then, the government took certain actions, reduced... Uh, uh, the foreign currency uh, purchasing ability, which means that people can't buy liras uh, as much, and therefore, uh, sorry, dollars, I should say, as much. So it, it solidified um, the Turkish lira, but it is still a very precarious situation for individuals. It's just that you know everything now is much more expensive. The fact of the matter is. The, I, I believe that the real impact will be seen in a month or so when the inflation rate really spikes. 
Today, the Turkish inflation rate is between 15 and 16 percent. It's bound to go much, much, much higher. And, and if the central bank doesn't respond to that, then you will have a, a, the real crisis. I think this is only the beginning of, of a, a much longer process. Let's also keep in mind, uh, if I could just jump in here for a second, uh, that there are a number of other uh, developments that are likely to occur in the coming weeks uh, or months. Uh, one, uh, you mentioned in your opening uh, the situation with regard to Andrew Brunson, this uh, North Carolina pastor who's been living in Izmir for almost three decades. Uh, if uh, he is not released, the Trump administration has promised to apply additional sanctions on Turkey, that's going to have uh, an impact on the economy. In addition, uh, there is uh, there were negotiations over fines that the Turkish uh, a Turkish bank called Halkbank is going to have to pay uh, for its uh, central role in helping Iran evade sanctions. Uh, if uh, this crisis between the United States and Turkey uh, deepens. Uh, there is the chance that the Trump administration, through the uh, through the Justice Department, will impose very, very large fines. This is the the largest uh, sanctions uh, evading scheme in history, uh, and there's been negotiations. The Turks have not wanted the fines to be so huge, but if in this uh, war of words between the two governments, uh, the Trump administration decides to impose very, very large uh, sanctions, it could have a, a major effect on Turkey's banking sector. One of the things that has struck me about the political coalition that has supported Erdogan is it's been you know, more conservative, socially conservative forces in the country. But the business community that has done very well under Erdogan has been a strong base of, of political support as well. Given that scenario that, that you all have been laying out about, about, the, about the impacts, the real economic impacts of how this crisis could play out, um, what is likely to happen politically inside inside the country and to Erdogan's support? Well, look, in terms of the business community, um, the business community is essentially today divided into two. One is a group of uh, businesses, it's a fairly large group, that is completely, completely in Erdogan's pocket. That is to say that they get contracts from the government every time the government in, in, uh, starts a big infrastructural project, whether it's an airport or a bridge or a highway, it's these companies that get those projects. So they will do whatever Erdogan says. Now, the more, more traditional um, biz, business sector, uh, the, the ones that really came up in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, those two are, to some extent, beholden to Erdogan. So all of these companies, in one way or the other, are beholden today to Erdogan. There are very few large companies that are not, but they also they're not in a position to take on the to take on the government. And you should remember that today, in Turkey, and that's in some ways more important than whether interest rates are increased or not is the fact that this is a system where there is no a rule of law, no separation of powers. The judiciary is completely controlled by, by Erdogan. Parliament does not figure in decision making, which means that if you have any trouble with the, with the government, you can't rely on the court system to essentially um, uh, save you. So that creates a situation where you do what the government tells you to do. 
So it's interesting. It sounds like then um, Erdogan is really in this crisis and feeling in a fairly strong position that he can maintain domestic support in in the face of these economic challenges, uh, which leads me to a question that I had wanted to ask. Um, Stephen, you mentioned that um, Erdogan has blamed outsiders and particularly the United States for this economic crisis. Does the actions that President Trump has already taken and those that you talked about a moment ago that are being contemplated, does that play into Erdogan's hands in some way in shoring up his domestic support by being able to blame the U.S. more convincingly? Or do you think that these policies can be effective? Well, from my perspective, I think more public pressure on Turkey over its bad behavior, in particular its holding of uh, American citizens as essentially bargaining chips in exchange for Fethullah Gülen and uh, this Turkish banker, Mehmet Hakan Attila, who was found guilty of uh, this scheme to help Iran uh, evade sanctions, is uh, a welcome change. for too long, uh, the George W. Bush and Barack Obama administrations have overlooked Turkish bad behavior, and it has essentially given the Turks license to do things like take Pastor Brunson and other Americans essentially hostage. Uh, there's been a lot of commentary about President Trump's tweet last Friday announcing the sanctions on aluminum and, and steel. It does strike me as that there was a, a bit gratuitous. It was uh, in line with the kind of president's negotiating style. Um, and it did, in fact, give President Erdogan uh, more material to work with in blaming the United States for engaging in economic warfare against Turkey. However, uh, I think we're talking about margins here. A stupefying 80% of the Turkish public believes that the United States was complicit in the failed coup attempt in July 2016. Uh, So people are already given to believe that the United States is engaged in uh, an effort to undermine the Turkish regime. And all Erdogan had to do was say it's the United States. The United States is engaged in an economic coup, uh, and I think it puts him in a in a in a in a strong political position. But I don't think that this is an argument for the United States to pull back from the public pressure. So some people are concerned about the relationship with the U.S. and Turkey deteriorating because of things like the security relationship through NATO, um, even though Turkey and, and the U.S. have been on different sides of the Syrian war, the important role that Turkey can play in that region. Um, are those interests still as important as they were before? Or is this a case of kind of, you know, Henry Kissinger's classic line of, you know, um, America has no permanent friends or enemies, only interests, and that those interests are shaped, are, are changing, therefore U.S. policy is changing. Do we need to protect that relationship? Well, interests work both ways. I mean, remember that just as the United States has interests in Turkey and, and in Turkey's uh, important position in the region, the Turks also have an interest in maintaining a relationship with the United States. Um, in fact, Turkey lives in a very dangerous neighborhood, and what makes Turkey essentially uh, secure and, a, and, a, and an important power is the fact that it is a member of the NATO alliance. So. As much as Turkey talks about uh, changing uh, alliances and closing up to Russians, Chinese, 
Somalis, you name, you, name, you name the country. The fact of the matter is that Turkey without the NATO alliance would be a very vulnerable country to pressure from everybody else. But I would say that following what Stephen was saying earlier, that you have essentially a structural problem today in Turkey. And what's that structural problem? Is that because Erdogan, um, the buck stops with Erdogan, he has nobody to blame. He can't blame parliament, he can't blame uh, ministers, he can't blame his son-in-law. He, the, the buck stops with him. The only people he can uh, blame are the outsiders. And who's the most powerful outsider? The United States. Right? So we, structurally, we are in a situation in which he's going to blame us for everything. And the mistake I think U.S. administrations have made until now, Trump, Obama, and going back, is every time the Turks have blamed us for everything, including, as Stephen said, organizing the coup, failed coup of July 2016, that we never pushed back and said, how dare you say this? How dare you say that you, we as an ally will try to overthrow an ally go government, right? And push back and take the Turks on. Instead, we, we, we basically, we have this very condescending attitude that says, oh, the Turks are Turks. They will say nonsense like this. We'll just let it roll off, um, off our back. We're not going to take them seriously. But when we do not, what happens is that, as Stephen also said, I think Stephen said 80% of the Turkish public believes that we were involved in the coup. I think it's 95%, right? Or maybe there are three people in Turkey who don't believe that. I mean, this because the government has has pushed this this narrative over and over and over. And we are paying the price for having taken these issues lightly. And, and so looking forward, right? The relationship is going to be difficult, but at the end of the day, the, Turkey needs the United States to work out a whole series of issues. It thinks it can, it can, it can work with the Russians, but remember, the Russians, when the Turks shot down an airplane, immediately the Russians imposed sanctions, so much so that the Turks had to back down and 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 cry uncle within a within a couple of weeks. So the Russians are are, are a tough neighbor. They're not going to take. They'll be, be gentle to, uh, with the, with the Turks. They'll play. They'll play to uh, to separate us from the from the Turks. But in general, and one more another important factor. Look at the Turkish economy. It is completely embedded in Western financial and economic networks. Uh, the, the Russian economy is as big as the Italian economy. So let's let's also look at who Turkey trades with most, it's the West. Where does Turkish export go? Mostly the West. Let me just let me just add one thing, put a, 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 a finer point and be at the risk of disagreeing ever so slightly with, with Henri, who I think, you know, explained the importance that NATO and the United States has been to Turkey over a long period of time and how important Turkey has been to the United States. But I think that now, you know, three decades after the end of the Cold War, there isn't a common interest or overarching threat that binds the two countries together. And what we're seeing now, what we've seen in the last two weeks, the flashpoint around Andrew Brunson, I think if you look deeper, reflects a relationship that has been changing, where two countries do not share interests, have different priorities and have different goals. Uh, President Erdogan, in his now infamous op-ed in the New York Times last Friday, 
listed Turkey's complaints uh, against the United States. Well, there is a longer list of American complaints about Turkish behavior, uh, including uh, everything from buying advanced weapon systems from the Russians that could potentially compromise America's own uh, weapon systems that are in the Turkish arsenal or are going to be in the Turkish arsenal, to undermining uh, U.S. policy on Iran, to uh, undermining uh, American efforts to fight the Islamic State in, in Syria. And then, then there's a much longer list. So I think the Turks uh, have signaled that they are not necessarily as interested in preserving a strategic partnership. And I think over time, Turkey's importance to the United States uh, has waned. And that's why I think the Trump administration sees an opportunity here to finally take uh, public uh, their complaints about Turkish behavior. So, Stephen, just to follow up with that, and I'd also love to get uh, Henri on this, too, what should be the goal of U.S. policy vis-a-vis Turkey right now? What would, should we try to accomplish? Well, just very quickly, I think that we should continue to apply pressure on the Turks to release not only uh, Andrew Brunson, but the other Americans that they're holding. Uh, and then I, I think that it's time for uh, Congress uh, and the administration to think more clearly about uh, what this relationship means and what we're getting out of it. And I think that if you take a look at the record over at least the last 10 years, uh, there isn't much. But I-, I would say that as we move forward with the Turks, despite uh, the anger that we uh, hear from uh from from Ankara, that uh, it's uh, important to maintain the public pressure uh, on the Turkish government because uh, it's really the only way in which uh, we can uh, compel them to respond. We have two other examples of this. Uh, Henri mentioned the incident in which the Turks shot down a Russian jet. Uh, the Russians applied sanctions immediately and put a lot of pressure on uh, on Turkey. The Turks came around. Uh, Angela Merkel, the chancellor of Germany, threatened uh, business ties between the two countries. Uh, Suddenly, uh, a German-Turkish journalist was released from Turkish prison. Uh, I I think those are are models for which the United States should uh, be interested in following. And Henri, what do you think our our goals should be of U.S. policy? What should we be trying to achieve? I think what we need is a completely fresh start. We need to have an honest conversation between the Turks and the Americans as to what it is that relationship is about, Only and essentially kind of also uh, put down some important red markers in terms of Turkish behavior, whether it is the anti-Americanism, the, 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 the racism in, in the Turkish press against uh, Americans, Two, most more importantly, that you never take on not just American um, citizens, but there are also three employees of the American embassy in Turkey who are in jail. Two of them are in jail. One of them um, is in house, house arrest. But they're being charged with preposterous conspiratorial um, cases, which, which is they're all designed to put pressure on us to get to get um, hostages essentially before the things that the Turks want, and the fact that they are in jails, we are still Trump or not Trump. We are still the most important power in the world, and all if if the Turks had any um, question about that, all they had to do is see that one tweet from uh, Donald Trump essentially sunk their current currency. So we are still the big 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 boy in the block, and. If 
it's, it is time has come for <coughs> to have this conversation. Yes, there are issues that the Turks are also upset about this, but we can work them out. And when you look at the question of Brunson and, and the three employees of the Turkish embassy, this was the easiest issue to solve. It should not have become a crisis. It is, and and it, it is a dereliction of duty on the part of the U.S. government, I would say, for, for having allowed this to become a crisis. I mean, I think it's time for restart, rethink, um, and it may take a summit. The problem uh, between the two leaders, the problem is we don't really understand how Mr. Trump functions in this summit, so I am kind of a little bit reluctant uh, to have a big summit over all issues. So, Phil, Henri and Stephen have talked about the tensions, the growing tensions in the relationship with the U.S. I want you to connect that tension to the financial crisis and how it is likely to unfold. Um, is the U.S. important for the resolution of this, of the financial crisis? What could it do to make it better or, or worse? And do we care what the U.S. does in terms of resolving this crisis? Yeah, we do care. It is connected. Um, I think the way to think about this, through both Democratic and Republican administrations, one of the sort of cornerstones of U.S. international economic policy has been try to avoid big financial crises. It's a little bit like, you know, when you see a brush fire starting up near a fuel depot, you put it out. You don't sort of argue about, you know, whether things might be going on because there's a chance that things can go really wrong and get out of hand. So that's been a point of emphasis for a long time. What we've seen the Trump administration do is effectively fan the flames a little bit. And it it happens in two ways. One, the the threats about Turkish steel tariffs um, were less important in their own right as much as they were important as a signal that the U.S. was not going to step in and help out if this crisis in Turkey really gets out of hand. The U.S. role matters a lot because it also has a veto at the IMF, at the International Monetary Fund. And so the standard recourse that most countries have which we've really you know, relied upon since the Second World War, has been go to the IMF, they'll stop the panic, they'll stop the contagion, and they'll get things under control. If the U.S. is you know, giving a teetering country a shove and then not is potentially going to block that, that mechanism for stopping a panic, it raises serious concerns that things can get out of control. One of the, the things in the situation, there's the politics and there's the economics um, for Erdogan in Turkey. At the moment on the economic side, he doesn't have a lot of really good choices. Um, he can sort of blame this on the United States and he can take a tough stand, but he's got soaring prices, a crashing currency, and banks that are starting to get into trouble. So the present course looks unsustainable. The way out, for the most part, is going to involve doing some things that he's really not going to enjoy doing, uh, which tends to be tightening up the fiscal belt, in other words, you know, reducing outlays for the government, and also allowing interest rates to go up quite a bit. The approach he's taken to this means that he's not left himself very many graceful ways to climb down. So the, the politics and the economics are colliding here in, in ways that will be very challenging for him. Thank you, Phil, Stephen, and Henri for being here this week. Clearly, this is a story that will continue to unfold, and I appreciate all three of you providing insight that will allow all of us to interpret the story as it continues to unfold. 
And thank you for tuning in to this episode of Deep Dish on Global Affairs. As a reminder, the opinions you heard today belong to the people who express them and not the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. You can find our show under Deep Dish on Global Affairs wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like the show, please take a moment and let us know by tapping the subscribe button so that you can get each new episode. And if you think you know of someone who would enjoy this episode, please tap the share button and send it to them as well. If you have questions about anything you heard today or if you want to submit questions for an upcoming guest, please join our Facebook group, Deep Dish on Global Affairs. This episode of Deep Dish was produced by Evan Fazio. I'm Brian Hansen, and we'll be back soon with another slice of Deep Dish.